Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Cliff Corcoran. Cliff is a writer for The Athletic and a regular contributor to MLB Network as well. Cliff, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Cliff, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. That's a good question. I I first really got hardcore into baseball when I was around 10 years old. Um, And I think I'd always been interested in just kind of from a distance in the aesthetics of the game. And I'm still a big uniform and baseball card fan. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that that's often something that I focus on and I'm a collector of baseball caps and such. But but I first started really following the game closely. The, the way I trace it is that as a, as a little kid, I was a big music fan because it was the very big early days of MTV and my babysitters would come over. And then from music... The uh, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but the Super Bowl shuffle kind of sports it came through into the music realm for a minute there with the Chicago Bears and and then the Mets. I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, so the '86 Mets were kind of my what got me sucked into baseball. And but I had Yankee fans up and down my family tree. So after enjoying the '86 Mets season, it was deep into the Yankees after that. And once I got a copy of the Big Mac and say baseball encyclopedia and realized that I could have every stat on every player. And, you know, it was all over for me at that point. And it's been pretty much ever since. I used to devour the baseball encyclopedias, too. I grew up in Boston. The 86 Red Sox are actually what got me into baseball. And it was funny as I, I think we're about the same age, but the 86 Red Sox, the I remember the ALCS. And the Dave Henderson home run off Donnie Moore, and it was like, oh my goodness, adults are happy, and everyone was so happy. <laughs> and then, like two weeks later, adults are very sad. Everyone was very, very sad, and it just was the turn of that, and all the statistics. That's why I loved it. I was a huge card collector as a kid, and then took a break for twenty five years, and then got back into it recently uh, over the last couple of years. And uh, so that's been different. But tell me about how your card collecting. Uh, were you collecting when I was a kid we always associated value with cards we all had Beckett's and the cards ended up being worth completely nothing from the junk wax era they're literally worth nothing but how were you collecting as a kid and how do you still collect now well as a kid I mean it was the usual stuff it was buying buying packs and trying to put a set together until I figured out that you know you could order the full top set for I forget maybe 35 bucks from the JCPenney catalog now 35 bucks was a lot for me when I was 10 or 11 or whatever it was but I could scrounge my my uh, if I knew it was coming, I could scrounge my allowance together and save up and just so I started buying complete sets pretty early in my collecting tops, and then I would buy packs of like Don Russ or Fleer or whatever. Um, but then when I right around that time, around you know the age of 10, 11, 12, a big baseball card store opened up in the middle of my town on my walk home from school. And I would walk into that store on my way home from school every day, and it was like Norm in Cheers. That everybody behind the counter would go, Cliff, and I was a big Dave Winfield fan. And they would set if they got a new Dave Winfield something, they'd set it aside for me. They had like a registry, so I could tell them, you know, if my parents come in, you know, tell them I need a seventy-five Winfield because I don't have that yet, or tell them I need, you know, whatever it was. And it was just, it was an amazing confluence, you know, like like you say, that was us being about the same age, and that that whole. Both the 86 season with those amazing playoffs and then the burst, the, the, the explosion of the baseball card industry and, and collecting after that was just it was such an ideal time if you were the right age to get sucked into baseball and have the store open up 
like I said, on my walk home from school, it was just it was it was heaven for me. It's now a bagel shop, which I frequent all the time, um, and I do most of my collecting, you know, via eBay. But I still have every top set since then, and I went back because you said they've been devalued. So I started going backwards. So now I have every uh, flagship top set back to '74, and I just got to 2018 a few weeks ago. And you keep them in boxes or binders? Binders sorted by team, subsorted pitchers and hitters. Then you know, with the starting lineup, followed by the bench guys and the starting rotation, followed by the bullpen guys. Very, very complex system. Uh, all the teams ordered according to uh, not entirely winning percentage because you got to put the the team that won the championship up front. But there is a system. There is a very specific system, and all whatever it is, forty five of those sets would adhere to the system. <laughs> But I'm also, in addition, you know, you buy the set, that's kind of like a boots, like a three-day thing. You buy it, you sort it, you put it in the album, there it is. And, of course, it's fun to pull out years later when you're like, oh, wow, look, you know, here's Clayton Kershaw's second year or whatever. Or, you know, or beyond the, the cool old cards that are, we already cool, that the cards that you buy this year or five years from now will be cooler, right? But I also collect, you know, because I can't really, I'm not a big spender. I've never been a big, I don't think I've ever spent more than $30 on a card. Um and I will buy cards in off condition just to have them as long as the picture's clean, that kind of thing. But but I'm still kind of butting up against as far back as I can go on sets. Seventy three, I think, can cost, you know, maybe three, four hundred bucks, and then there's a huge jump on seventy two and forget it. I'm not spending four figures on a on a card set. But so I, I kind of do these individual team sets of championship teams or interest like the 64 Phillies interesting teams from the 60s or even back to the 50s and I'll take two album pages nine car nine cards on each so 18 guys which is enough to get you your lineup and your key pitchers and a couple bench guys and the manager um and I'll put together teams of those so I've got a another nice thick binder that you know has a team from every year going back to maybe 57 or so i'm working on this 67 red Sox right now i already got the cardinals from that year um so that's kind of like the little hobby and that and i'm going beyond that now now see i could fill up all of our time with this <laughs> um i'm going beyond that now to to put together teams that weren't good but you know like but a span over uh, uh several years so for example example the entire Kansas City A's, which was only 55 to 67, who was, you know, kind of like their most relevant or most significant guy at each position, get a manager, get some pitchers and put 18 guys together, try to get one card from every year they existed, try to get every uniform look they had and happen to have that all happen in 18 cards. So that's kind of like my new thing that I'm adding to that kind of 50s, 60s album. So that keeps me busy. Yeah, I like finding random things that could go on a page. I was never a binder guy as a kid, but I've gotten into that now because, you know, sorting is fun. But I like, uh, as a guy that wears glasses, I like finding guys wearing glasses and baseball jackets. I think that's fun. And it's fun to uh -huh. see, car you know, cards that you would never other otherwise think to put in a binder or to display. But you're like, hey, he's wearing glasses. Of course Kevin Gregg belongs on this page. <laughs> or guys wearing the windbreaker under the jersey. That's always a classic. Right, there you go. Find those. There you go. Well, we could clearly talk about baseball cards all day, but we're going to talk about other things as well. We're going to talk about a couple of your pieces for The Athletic that you wrote recently. Last week, you had a great piece about pitching milestones and how we should evaluate new milestones for active pitchers, as 300 wins seems like it's unlikely going to happen for anyone. Even 250 is going to be hard to get. You did a nice comparison piece in your... Um, in that piece where you looked at the worst, and that's in quotations, obviously, the worst 300-game winner, the worst 
250 game winner and you found that the gap between them isn't that big but then you looked at the worst 200 game winner and you found that the gap between 250 and 200 was quite large can you tell me about some of that stuff that you found in there the main goal this whole piece uh clayton kershaw just got to 150 wins i think it was last weekend and and a day or so later or on the same day uh justin verlander got to 200 and whenever we get to debt to particularly with the wins um, because we've devalued and, and really myself completely discarded one loss records in terms of having any relevance within a single season. But when we see career milestones like that, I was trying to figure out, you know, do these really mean anything? If so, what should mean something? Because 300 seems like we're not going to see that again soon. I'm not going to say we're never going to have another 300 game winner, but Randy Johnson was the last, I think it was 2010 or 2009 that he won his 300th. And if you look at the active pitchers now, there's nobody more accomplished than, like, say, Aaron Nola or some, like, you know, early 20s guy who's just starting to break out. There's nobody on pace for 300 wins. It's just not going to happen for, like, a whole generation of pitchers. So what what else can we look at? And and I was also, yeah, I thought about it for a moment. I'm like, well, you know, are, is there some other stat we could look at? And the thing is that obviously when we're looking at Hall of Fame cases and, and things like that, looking at a player's career, there are lots of advanced stats, obviously wins above replacement, all sorts of other metrics that we can use. But I was looking for something that we could see them actually do on the field. That moment when it goes up on the scoreboard and it says Justin Verlander just you know had his whatever, 3,000th strikeout or 250th win or whatever the number is that moment that you can have you can actually see it happen have it happen at the ballpark and there are lots of these for hitters because hitters a hitter's job is to accumulate stuff whether it's hits or doubles or triples or homers or score runs draw walks still steal bases there's lots of accumulation there but a pitcher's job is really the opposite of that it's to prevent accumulation you know all those things i just named they don't want them to happen the only things they really want are kind of like games and innings and maybe starts and then like saves and wins. You don't even want losses. There's not a lot of stuff there for them to accumulate. And when you look at those other things I just named, well, games is all relievers now. You know, the the the, the frequency which with relievers are used has blown up the career leader list for, for games. So that that's not really terribly helpful. And innings pitched is still pretty dominated by dead ball era type guys. Uh you can kind of get there with games started, but, you know, it's it's a, almost, like I said in the piece, almost too egalitarian. It, I think Bartolo Colon is like 30th all-time in games started, and that feels kind of high. And and plus it's the idea of, like, in order to start a game, you just have to get out there and throw one pitch, and then, boom, you started a game. And it doesn't feel like, you know, and plus now with the opener that we're seeing with some teams, that, that the, the game started stat could be devalued. And that kind of leaves you with wins. But I'd been reading um, uh, one of Bill James' old abstracts recently, and, and he talks about how games played for hitters and one-loss records for pitchers are don't mean much in a single season because you'll get a whole bunch of hitters of varying quality who will start 155 plus games and you know one loss records we know about all the problems with them when it comes to offensive support and bullpen support and just you know timing and the fluke nature of when the run scores and all that kind of stuff um don't work much within a single season but over the course of a full career a lot of the noise is canceled out it's different for the hitters and the games thing i won't go down that alley here but but for wins and losses, James' opinion, and this is back in 1987, of course, um, 
was that a lot of that noise is canceled out by the larger sample, which which is true to a point. I'm not sure I agree with him as much, but having looked at these other cumulative stats, I'm like, wins are kind of the best one because, you know, we still see guys, Greg Maddox and Roger Clemens got way up there past 350. So we know a guy in a five-man rotation can get that high on the list. You know, we've seen Tom Glavin and Randy Johnson win 300 games. This is not unattainable territory. We're not going to see it soon, but that list is a good mix of old guys and new guys. And there is a little bit of, it's not just longevity. There is a little bit of a quality control sort, sort of thing in there. And that's what got me to the idea of, well, how weak a career can you have and still get to these certain benchmarks? You know, who was, like you say, I used least accomplished to try to avoid the word worst, but the least accomplished 300th game winner who was early win, who hung around a few extra years and actually pitched his last year largely in relief to get that 300th win at the age of, I think it was 43 or 44. Um, but he, he really, if you compare him using the advanced metrics, he kind of falls below the standard for a Hall of Famer. Who was the weakest 250 game winner that's in the Hall uh, or 250 game winner at all in a of course, it's Jack Morris. <laughs> um, you of know, course and, it is. Of course, it's Jack Morris. It had to be Jack Morris. Um, and I'm not going to get back into the Jack Morris debate. But the point there, like you said, is that Jack Morris and early win are not that far apart in terms of their overall accomplishments in the major leagues. But then you look to 200 wins and you get Lou Burdett. Now, Lou Burdett was famous for just crushing the Yankees in the 1957 World Series. I think he had three complete games or were they, I don't know if they were all shutouts. I don't remember exactly, but he just dominated the Yankees and the Braves won their only world championship in Milwaukee. And it was a great performance, but his career kind of petered out after that. He spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth between starting and relief. And, but he got over 200 wins in the long run, but it was not a very strong career. And in terms of war, was like half as good as early wins. So there's a big drop off there. And also just in pure numbers, there are like 23, 24 guys who have won 300 games, a similar number that have won between 250 and 300. But then between 200 and 250, there's like 70 guys. Way more. It just explodes. So you're like, yeah, okay, the cutoff has to be somewhere in there. And in looking at just, you know, the guys who've gotten into the Hall of Fame or have strong arguments, I was actually able to find a cutoff. You, 250 felt like it would work based on all the things I've just said. But I look closer at it, and the actual cutoff, although it's not a fun round number, is 235. 235 is one less than Whitey Ford won. He, nobody's actually won 235 in Major League history or, or didn't finish on 235. Whitey Ford won 236. And from 235 up, of all the guys who have had their time on the writer's ballot, gone all the way through. So Mike Messina and Roger Clemens, we're taking them out of the conversation right now. Although, arguably, they should both be in, depending on your opinion on, on, on uh, you know, Clemens' uh, performance-enhancing drug issues. Um, and Andy Pettit hasn't gotten onto the ballot yet. Uh, and then we've got Bartolo Colon and CeCe Sabathia, who are still active. So you take those guys out of the remainder, eight, 79% of those guys from 235 up are in the Hall of Fame. Now, they're not all necessarily the best Hall of Fame selections. Again, Jack Morris is in there. Early Wynn is in there. There are some other guys you can argue with. But the fact that just getting to that mark gives you like an 80% chance of getting in the Hall of Fame historically, that feels like that's where significance arrives. And it's not a slam dunk like 300, because other than Clemens, every 300-game winner is in the Hall of Fame. 
And I don't think there should be a slam dunk milestone really anywhere. I think you should evaluate the career and not just automatically because he reaches this number he's in. But if you want to find some number that really means something, that, again, you can see the guy on the field, put it up on the scoreboard. It's not as much fun because it doesn't have all those zeros that we love, but it's 235. Yeah, and it's an interesting number, too, because I think that there are 63 pitchers in Major League history with 235 wins or more. And that's a good number because there are, depending on how we classify Monty Ward and Dennis Eckersley, if we take those guys out of the starting pitcher equation, there are 66 starting pitchers in the Hall of Fame for their major league career. So 63 with 235 or more, 66 in the Hall of Fame for their major league career. That's about the same number and about the same percentage, so that's obviously a good marking point. It's not the same 300. It's not that big zero or round number that we like, but I think it is a really good standard, and it's one that's much more obtainable for active pitchers. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, Sabathia and Cologne are already past it. We know that Verlander just got to 200. He's not that old. He could get to 235 very easily, as could Zach Greinke, who I think is somewhere around 184, 185 wins. Um, both of those guys could get to that to 235 uh, buyer before their age 38 season. And there are other guys who have a shot. John Lester has a shot. Um, you know, they're I'm blanking on the other guys. Uh, <laughs> You'd mentioned Chris um, Sale, Madison Bumgarner. Right. Those guys are a little further away, but they're young enough and they're over 100 wins already that certainly if they can stay healthy, uh, they'll get there. Uh, but again, that's the test. And it's that that's the whole idea of a milestone is, OK, this guy's been great for five, six, seven years. But does he have the longevity to get to that milestone? And I think it's a it's a reasonable it's an it's an it's an achievable goal, achievable milestone, but also, like I said, a, a meaningful one. And you mentioned the the sixty six starting pitchers and the sixty three. It's not a perfect one to run ratio. It's like not all sixty three of those guys above two thirty five are actually in your sixty six because there's also like Al Spalding is up there, and I think Clark Griffith is up there. You know who won that many games in the in the the like one or two pitcher wrote and not even rotations rosters right and then guys like pedro and kofax didn't hit that number at all right exactly and there's some quality guys below exactly even like kurt schilling who a lot of people you know outside of his his, his extracurricular stuff uh you know the career deserves the hall of fame is below that mark so but that again the fact that you have like guys that like pedro martinez clearly a hall of famer first ballot one of the best pitchers ever didn't even get there shows that it's not lowering the bar too far. Yeah. And that's one of those things as much as I've obsessed over baseball numbers and, and comparing active players to generations past. And I've done this my whole life. I used to create lists and I'd write them down in my notebooks, ranking players and, there is no perfect number. There is no number we can look at and say, well, this is the number, and if you look at the top 50 players of this, it's the top 50 players of all time. That number doesn't exist for any player at any position. It doesn't exist with wins above replacement. That comes closest, or wins above average might come closest, but there is no number that you can look at and says, this is the number that automatically determines who or who should not belong in the Hall of Fame. One of the things I struggle with when I've written some blog posts about historical players and you know you, you say things like Ty Cobb led the league in OPS plus this many times and I struggle with that and I struggle with that because he died never knowing what that was and I I wonder where's the line where what milestone should matter how much of what matters to the players 
should matter to us. You had mentioned Mickey Mantle falling below 300 career batting average late in his career. I think his last year he fell below 300, and that really bothered him. It really bothered him, and batting average is not something, career batting average, I think we've gone beyond that. We've evolved beyond career batting average, and there are other things to look at, but that's what mattered to Mantle, and even Keith Hernandez on the Mets broadcast has talked about this frequently, that his last two years in the majors cost him his career 300 average, and it bothers him. That's something that matters to players, and I do think wins still matter to pitchers, even though it's not as much as it used to. Pedro Martinez was on MLB Network a few weeks ago, and they were talking about Scherzer and DeGrom, and he said he would much rather have Scherzer seasons, and he much ra- would rather have the wins. And he's like, the low ERA is great, but if you had, and DeGrom at the time was under 500, they were just like, he can't, yeah, I don't want to have five wins. He's like, I want to have 15 wins, and I want to have the low ERA to go along with it. So there is still an element there that matters to pitchers that they want their win. And I'm just curious how you go about approaching things with how much do the stats that matter to players, how much should that affect or influence what matters to us? Well, that's why I tried to ground this milestone conversation, like I said, in something observable, something that you can see get achieved on the field. Because, like, for example, the, one of the things I mentioned in the article is that uh, not, not only can rate stats fluctuate, like you mentioned with these 300 batting averages, but even something like wins above replacement, you can have a negative season or the guy who created it can decide to tweak the formula slightly and you can drop below whatever the mark is. Albert Pujols has passed 100 wins above replacement, which is a tremendous number, but he's passed it twice because he fell below replacement last year and then he got back over it again this year. So there's all that kind of going back and forth that, you know, it's when the, when everything's said and done and we're trying to make a statistical case, those are the things that are the, the best stats are the most meaningful stats. But during the course of a career and you're turning, talking about milestones and that sort of stuff, Yeah, I want to ground it in something I can watch happen because ultimately this is a spectator sport. It's entertainment and it's the whole idea of what, you know, can we see it happen on the field? That doesn't mean that the stat is necessarily more meaningful or more important, but I think we shouldn't lose touch with those actual, you know, a statistic is actually something that measures something that happens and we shouldn't get away from measuring those things that happen even if in order to evaluate a player beyond that, you need the larger context of the formulas or the ratios or whatever it is. I, I wouldn't argue against that at all. That's that's I base my career in that. But at the same time, I think we should have some level of appreciation for the just the accumulation and the actual measuring of the things happening on the field. I agree with that. And I want to ask you about this season's in-season awards. I feel like we're at a point with about a month left in the season, a little bit longer in the regular season, that is. But none of the awards are decided. All of the awards are open, and they're all close races. And you do a, a regular awards watch piece for The Athletic. So let's do some awards previews. AL Cy Young, AL MVP, who do you have? Yeah, like you say, this is crazy. I've been writing this awards watch column. I, I didn't do it uh, last year when I was writing for Sports on Earth, but otherwise I've been doing it since 2010. And I, I can't remember all of the awards being in play heading into September like this before. It, it's totally nuts. And I can't give you a single guy because of that, because they're so close. In the American League MVP, I mean, it's Trout, Jose Ramirez, and Mookie Betts. And I'm not picking a guy right now. Trout's back off the DL and he's hitting. You know, all these guys are really good. There's a little bit of a playing time advantage for Jose Ramirez, and playing time does matter. Games played is in the instructions to the voters that that's like a they, – they, 
separate that out as a criteria. And when you think about value and you think about a guy who's there doing it for you every day, you know, that matters. And right now Ramirez has got uh, something like 65 plus plate appearances on Trout, maybe 50 or so on bets. That could matter if things get really close at the end. Uh, You know, on a rate basis, Trout's in front. You might say that Betts has been a better fielder. Uh, Ramirez has been outstanding. All three of those guys, the the what they do on the bases, what they do in the field, and what they've done at the plate, it's those three. And there's nobody else. There are other guys who are having outstanding seasons. A lot of people talk about J.D. Ramirez because it, in terms of his offense, he's kind of with those guys, but he does nothing on the bases, nothing in the field. And when he is in the field, he probably hurts you. Uh, I just can't get him in the group with those guys. And then Matt Chapman, I think, has actually moved up now into maybe fourth place on that list. Francisco Lindor was excellent. He's cooled off a little bit. There are other guys you can talk about having tremendous seasons, but Betts, Ramirez, and Trout are just on another level. They're having seasons that if one of them was having a season like that, we'd be talking about this amazing hit. Like, Like when Bryce Harper won the MVP unanimously a few years ago and we talked about what a historically great season he was having. All three of these guys are having that kind of season and they're fielding and running better than Harper did. Uh, so that's just, I mean, blows it about, blows it out of the water. And then for the Cy Young, it's a different problem, but also relates to playing time in that Chris Sale has clearly been the best pitcher in the American League this year, but he's been on the disabled list twice and he's still on it. And so now he is uh, 33 innings behind Corey Kluber and a similar amount behind Justin Verlander. And Trevor Bauer was actually the guy who had moved up into second place recently, but then he got hit by the comebacker, broke his leg, and now he's out pretty much. Hopefully, he'll come back in time for the postseason. We don't know. He's pretty much done. So he, that's 166 innings. He's not going to win the, the Cy Young on that. So he's almost out of the picture. He, he'll probably get some votes, but he's kind of out of the picture. And Verlander has not been pitching as well recently over his past dozen or so starts. He's had, a, I think, a mid-fours ERA. Uh, so there's nobody really pushing sale in terms of quality, but at what point is the gap in innings large enough to overcome that difference? And if Chris sale comes back and has a few bad starts and then he's losing in innings and the gap isn't that big, it could go to one of these other guys. So it's still wide open, despite the fact that inning for inning sale has clearly been the best. Yeah. And if sale doesn't come back or if he comes back in mid September, Bauer being out. I mean, Blake Snell's had a great year, but he's not going to win just because he's on the Rays. Realistically, a guy like Edwin Diaz could win. Relievers do win every once in a while. It's been a long time since that's happened. But if Diaz breaks the saves record, he is having a great year. He's a guy I think is going to certainly come in the top five. And if 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 Verlander, I don't want to say continues to struggle because he hasn't really been struggling, but he's not pitching like a Cy Young Award winner lately. Uh, Kluber's been great. Snell has been great. But I I feel like Diaz is going to be right in that conversation. I don't think necessarily he should be. I'd rather have Sale, what he's done, even if he doesn't pitch again, than Diaz. But I think Diaz is going to get a lot of consideration this year. I agree with you there that he that is kind of a little bit of a vacuum created. And whenever that happens, you get interesting kind of left field candidates, right? That's kind of how we got uh, Justin Verlander winning an MVP or Clayton Kershaw winning an MVP or like you say on occasion relievers winning a Cy Young award although a reliever hasn't won a Cy Young award since uh, Eric Gagne in what was that 2005 I want to say um, and hasn't won one in the American League I want to say since Dennis Eckersley in 92 you can check me on all those facts but um, 
you know, Diaz, I, I mentioned playing time, and I mean, he's going to have, what, 65, maybe 70 innings at the end of the season. And I would just talked about how Chris Sale, if he he's at one, I think around 145 now, and if he only gets a few more, it might not be enough. Or how if Trevor Bauer is stuck at 166, it might not be enough. I have a hard time personally um, finding any legitimacy for giving the award to somebody who's only thrown 65 to 70 innings, regardless of leverage, regardless of the quality of those innings. I mean, we had this conversation with Zach Britton a couple years ago when he had the 0.56 or something ERA. And everybody's like, oh, well, Zach Britton, he's been so good. He's, you know, he makes up plus the leverage and it makes up, but he didn't win the award. I'm not sure that a reliever really is going to win the award again, unless you see a reliever going out there and throwing triple digit number of innings. Uh, You know, I think Sale has been good enough for Verlander or Kluber, like you say. But there is a little bit of a vacuum and something funky could happen there. Uh, but I, I certainly I, w- I would not be on board with that. I would I would disapprove. But I, I could see I certainly I could see Diaz getting kind of like like you say, top five votes. I don't see him winning it, though. Yeah. And it's sort of it, it, that this season is with Sale and Diaz and with Bauer and Diaz, for that matter. It's all similar to the Johan Santana and Trevor Hoffman Hall of Fame thing that just happened last year where Johan Santana got bounced because he didn't pitch enough innings or pitch enough in general, but he pitched twice as many innings than Hoffman, who got in on his second or third try. And it was just one of those things where it's like, well, wait, wait a second, can you imagine in 2003 if the Padres offered Hoffman for Santana straight up? They would have been laughed out of the building. They would have hung up the phone on them. But Santana didn't do enough, and Hoffman did. And I find that to be very weird. Yeah, I, I think uh, to a large degree, playing time and, and quantity gets ignored too often in these kind of I, I, or did. Again, it's been a while since a reliever has won one of these with these awards. You know, with the Hoffman thing, I think, you know, I, and I was somebody who said, you know, if I I do not have a Hall of Fame ballot yet, I'm a, maybe five years away or so, maybe six years away from getting one. Um, but I always kind of do a piece on the ballot and offer the 10 guys I would vote for. And of course, I'd always wish that I could vote for more than 10 with these, the, the way the ballot's been stuffed recently. But I, Santana was on mine, you know, and I think I, I don't, I might've dropped Hoffman off to make room for him. Um, you know, I, I, you know, as valuable as relievers are and as much as the bullpen has become very important in the game, I always kind of, the individual reliever performance, I just think is so overvalued. Um, but partially because of those quantity of innings. And, but, you know, Trevor Hoffman, you could make the argument is the second greatest. I don't think he actually is, but you could make the argument. He's certainly second in saves, the second greatest relief pitcher of all time. I think he might be top five, but I put maybe Hoyt Wilhelm and Goose Gossage and, uh, uh, obviously Rivera's number one. Uh, Hoffman might come in after them. There's a little bit more of a, a, a scrum after those three, but, uh, I think it's where he places historically in the history of relief pitchers. But then the other thing is that relief pitcher is not a position. You can win a game without using a relief pitcher. Happens every so often. Uh, you know, which is, and then we get into the whole thing with Edgar Martinez and designated hitters is that designated hitter is a position. You cannot play an American League game without a designated hitter, but you can play and win one without a relief pitcher. And the fact that designated hitters don't get as much respect in the Hall of Fame voting. Uh, as relief pitchers do, I think is unfair. Uh, I think we're going to see Edgar Martinez get in this upcoming year. It's his last year on the ballot. He had a big jump last year, and there seems to be a groundswell of support for him. And then, of course, we'll see what happens with David Ortiz, who I feel like will get in. But, of course, there's that kind of 
the survey testing performance enhancing drug thing, which a lot of people are now more willing to disregard. But uh, it's a whole other thing with designated hitters. But at the same time, when it comes to the end of the season by season awards, I just talked about J.D. Martinez. The designated hitters don't get the respect, but they're they're not being compared to relief pitchers. They're being compared to, you know, Mookie Betts, who does everything. And if you don't do everything, you're not as good as him. That's true. But the relievers aren't winning either. So it's 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 actually kind of more fair between those two things in the in the season by the individual season awards. But it always gets me that, you know, there's we talk about the relief pitchers in the Hall of Fame when that's more of a strategic position, not an official position. But designated hitters were like, I don't know if a designated hitter belongs in the Hall of Fame. It bothers me. Let's shift over to the National League awards. Been a lot of focus on the National League Cy Young race. All three of the top contenders, Scherzer, Noller, and DeGrom, pitched tonight. This is the second time in a week that Scherzer has been outpitched by Nola. Uh, DeGrom has been very good as well tonight, only giving up one run against Cole Hamels and the Cubs. Who do you have among those three? I feel like this is the case where, uh, what was it, in 2015, where you had uh, Granke, Kershaw, and Arietta. They were all having great, historically great seasons. Uh, it had to go to someone. It went to the guy I would have gotten, given it to third place to. It went to Arietta. But uh, this season, I think it was going to be Scherzer, and they still have six starts left after tonight. But I think he's losing his grasp on this award a little bit, especially having been outpitched by Nola in the last twice in the last week. I think DeGrom has pulled him to the front of this pack. I completely agree with you. And and tonight, I mean, it was a treat to have all three of these guys going tonight. I'm actually writing my next awards column on Wednesday, and it'll go up probably on The Athletic on Thursday. And so to have all these guys pitch Tuesday night, not only works out great for me in terms of the timing, but it's just a treat to have all of them pitching on one night and to have these two matchups of Scherzer and Nola which have been so fantastic. And to see the kid outpitch the the guy who's won a couple of Cy Youngs in a row, you know, arguably the best pitcher in baseball, big picture over the last several seasons, Max Scherzer. But I do think that DeGrom is pulling ahead of them. Uh, Nola, you, you know, in terms of ERA and everything, he's actually pulled a little bit ahead of Scherzer with tonight's performance. But if you look behind that, Scherzer's got a good lead on him in things like strikeout to walk ratio and strikeout rate and whip and and innings and all that sort of stuff. So I think Nola might still be third, but DeGrom has just been so good. Uh, and his lead and run prevention is so much. Uh, and Scherzer has, like you say, no, he's not nothing like Verlander in terms of taking a step back, but not dominating the way he was earlier. In fact, when I wrote my last awards watch, which was actually just a few weeks ago, I usually do it monthly, but I did my most recent one. I wanted to dodge the trading deadline. So I did it like the first week of August. And I, I put up the numbers there about how Max Scherzer was fantastic for the first month and a half, just utterly dominant. And DeGrom wasn't so great. Then DeGrom hurt his arm uh, swinging the bat and missed effectively two starts because he did it in the first inning of one start. So he had, came out of that game, went on the DL for 10 days, missed one more start and came back. Since DeGrom came back, he has outpitched Scherzer hands down. And that's over multiple months, and he's continuing to do it. So what we've seen is DeGrom sneaking up on Scherzer, and I think in the last couple weeks, he's passed him. And and that the, whether or not that gap continues to widen, I'm not sure. But I think it might, you know, it's going to come down to what voters wind up voting for this award because it's not the entirety of the Baseball Writers Association of America. It's two guys from each city, and it's kind of random which two guys you get. 
and it could have something to do with the voters, you know, whether or not they're over willing to overlook one loss record, which we've seen happen in the past. You know, people talk about Lincecum and uh, Granke and King Felix winning with whatever it was, 14, 15 wins. I think King Felix was only a game over 500 uh, in his Cy Young season. So we've seen it happen recently, this kind of disregarding the win. But at the same time, we have also seen like Rick Porcello winning over Justin Verlander a couple years ago because Porcello was the guy with the great record. You know, we've seen wins also matter more recently. So I don't know which way we're going to go. You don't know exactly how they're all going to finish up, of course. I could see DeGrom getting the award, I think certainly deserving the award based on the trends we're seeing right now. Uh, But you mentioned the Arietta-Granke-Kershaw year. That was a strong finish, and we've seen strong finishes matter. And that this applies to all of these awards, really. Uh, the first Corey Kluber Cy Young was he just dominated down the stretch. And Arietta won that award. In the, all those guys were almost equal in terms of it was very different, difficult to separate them in terms of actual value. But Arietta had that sub one ERA in the second half of the season, which was a record setting mark and just utter dominance down the stretch. And there's a recency bias in the voters that I've noticed over the years. So if one of these guys puts together a ridiculous September, first off, yes, it could move him ahead of the others because they're all so close. But if they all finish in a similar place, the guy who finishes strongest in any of these awards could wind up being the winner. I think you can make a reasonable case that those three pitchers have not only been the three best pitchers in the National League so far this year, but they've been the three best players. But I don't think either of them are going to win or any of them are going to win the MVP. Uh, That is uh, still a very rare thing for a pitcher to win, and I think they will take votes away from each other. MVP in the National League, who's the front runner at this point? Well, again, you know, the, the column that I write is who I think deserves it if the season ended today. In terms of who the actual front runner is, that's a harder question to answer. I think Matt Carpenter is going to get a lot of credit for what the Cardinals have done uh, although the, the change has been more since changing managers, Carpenter got hot in mid-May and they continued to lose for a month and a half before they switched managers and then started to win. But if the Cardinals make it into the postseason, his tremendous turnaround in mid-May and through to now um, is going to weigh heavily for voters. Um, a lot of people are excited about you know Javier Baez and, and what he's been able to do all around you know, with the the stealing uh, sorry the base running and the fielding but not as much of the hitting as the al guys because he's got that low on base percentage um he's not raking quite to the same degree but he does have 28 plus home runs and if anybody still cares about rbis which they shouldn't he's leading the the league i think the majors um those guys are going to be in the mix nolan arenado will be in there if the rockies make it paul goldschmidt's coming on strong late there's a but the thing is that the more you start to talk about it the more guys you realize are kind of neck and neck with each other And that's where I think there might be an opportunity for one of these pitchers to take the award. I certainly think, as you just said, I agree with you that these have been those three pitchers have been the three best players in the National League and that that's who should one of those guys should be the guy who wins the MVP. But if there was one guy, if there was just Jacob deGrom or just Max Scherzer or just Aaron Nola, really, because in the in the old school, you know, value means helping your team win argument, which I generally don't agree with and we could get into that if you want to but uh nola is the guy who is helping a team accomplish something that they weren't expected to do you know the mets have been bad and there's that old well they could lose without Degrom. 
Um, yes, but DeGrom has still been tremendously valuable. Um, Max Scherzer, the Nationals have been disappointing despite his performance. But yes, where would they be without him? Would they would be even still be talking about them? Uh, you know, so Aaron Nola might get your kind of old school MVP support there. But then DeGrom may be the most valuable pitcher slash player. And, you know, I would like to see those guys do well in the voting. And, and I think if I had a vote today, I would probably vote for them one, two, three before I got to any of the hitters. But uh, so it's a mess. And it was, you know, the National League MVP was a mess last year, too. And it wasn't till late in the season. Giancarlo Stanton really had a fantastic, again, strong finish. And he got to 59 home runs. And by the time the votes were finally placed, it was kind of obvious that he was going to be the guy. But like two, three weeks out, you know, early September, it wasn't. There was this same kind of scrum of guys with Goldschmidt and Votto and a whole bunch of other guys in there with Stanton. Uh, and it wasn't clear. And you're like, what's going to happen here? And, and I think we're in a similar situation. Maybe somebody's going to pull ahead, going to have that strong finish, going to put up some sort of magical number that's going to catch everybody's eye, whatever it is. Um, but from here, I mean, I almost put, put 10, 15 names on the board and throw a dart at it. Lastly, before we wrap it up, I want to ask you just a general observation about this season so far. And obviously it's not done yet, about five weeks left in the regular season. And obviously the postseason matters as well. And that's postseason narrative. And what happens in the postseason is often what can define a season. But up until this point, how do you think the 2018 season will be remembered? What is the storyline of this season? It's a good question. I think on some level uh, that the emergent teams in the National League will be a relevant storyline. If the Braves and the Phillies and the Brewers um, and maybe even the Pirates because they, they added some pieces at the deadline that were unexpected um, or if the Reds build on kind of their better play under Jim Riggleman, I don't necessarily I'm not terribly optimistic about those last two. But if this is the start of a run of successful seasons for the Braves and the Phillies, the Brewers, it's they're already year two of it. Uh, but it looks like they very likely could get into the playoffs, which they didn't last year. I think that emergent, young, rebuilding teams, because remember, just a couple of years ago, even just last year, it was, oh, all these tanking teams in the National League, ah, the, the Braves and the Phillies and the Brewers and the Reds and the Padres. And, you know, they're just not even trying. But I don't believe in tanking. I mean, rebuilding has been rebuilding for a very long time, and, and it worked. It doesn't always work. You can mess it up. But if you look at these teams, the five-year plan has pre been pretty consistent. The Astros, and I just wrote about this in a piece about the Orioles, the Astros took five years between 111 losses in the World Series, winning the World Series. The Cubs took five years between, I think it was 105 losses and winning the World Series. The Phillies, it was, what, maybe six, seven years ago that they had their last great season with the you know, Doc Holliday and all those guys. And here they are back, relevant, young, talented, ready to fight going forward. The Braves had that kind of forced rebuild before the new ballpark opened up. They were a year or two late getting up to speed in the new ballpark. But here they are looking like a division winner. Re rebuilding works. It's not tanking. It's rebuilding. And I, I feel like that could be uh, the legacy on some level of this season. Because coming into the year, there were we had these seven teams. They were like, oh, we already know who was it seven. Yeah, 17. We know who seven of these playoff teams are going to be. Well, in the American League, it's gone exactly according to plan. Astros, Indians, Red Sox and Yankees, 
then pick me a second wild card team and we're good. And that's exactly what happened. But in the National League, it's all helter skelter. The Cubs are finally be- being the Cubs that we expected. And this is their pattern in recent years. The second half surge to put things away. Now they're four and a half up on the Cardinals. And we'll see what they do here against DeGrom tied in the late innings. But, you know, the Cubs are going to be the Cubs again, it looks like. And they, especially if they get Chris Bryant back soon. But, you know, the the Dodgers tanked early, built it back. Their bullpen folded on them again. They may miss the playoffs. The Nationals are going to miss the playoffs. And we've got a lot of other interesting teams and among those those young ones that I mentioned. That's the unexpected aspect of the season. And like I said, because those teams are young and talented, that could be the legacy of the season as well. It will also depend somewhat on how they do in the postseason, like you say. Uh, but again, if they if they build on this year and they're still relevant two, three years down the road, I think that's how we're going to remember 2018. You've been listening to Cliff Corcoran. Cliff is a writer for The Athletic. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Cliff Corcoran. Cliff, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Anytime. Thanks for having me.